This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot and they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May, and again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates, and that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick-and-mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the U.S., My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director, Will Ayers. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Gold Star sibling, Brant McCartney. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics, from Brandt losing his older brother, Marine Captain Matthew Brewer, to suicide, the accumulated traumatic brain injuries in both sports and military service, the Concussion Legacy Foundation, 
the 38 challenge, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Brant McCartney. Enjoy. Well, Brand, I want to say firstly, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, man, it's a uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I reached out to you a while ago and happy to uh, to be on the other side of it. Absolutely. So tell me where you are right now and tell me the weather conditions that you're experiencing. Yeah, man, I am in Dallas, Texas. So I actually moved out here from Austin a couple of weeks ago. Um, I moved made the decision to move to Dallas a couple of weeks ago, finally got in this weekend. And then we are hit with the, the winter apocalypse. And man, anytime there is like a snowflake, the, the whole city shuts down. So we got some, we, we got some icy roads and icy conditions and kind of locked in today. So, um, but man, yeah, hopefully, hopefully everyone in Dallas is, is staying safe and, and staying warm. I remember when I lived in California for a few years after originally coming from England and then spending, uh, I think it was a year and a half in Florida, two years. And then the the TV news, we get a little bit of rain and you think it was, uh, again, the apocalypse. And the people, reporters would be out in the street and it was, for everyone else that comes from a rainy place, it was simply just raining. And it's amazing how when you're not used to a certain type of weather, people can freak out where it's a complete norm for other people. Yeah, I experienced the same thing a couple a couple of years ago. And I'm from I'm from the Midwest. I was born in St. Louis, lived in Chicago for a few years, so am no stranger to to uh, heavy snow and, and cold weather. And then when it happened here, I was like, like the first time I was like, All right, I understand. Like, there's you, you might not have been ready, but now it's just like anytime there's snow, they're just willing to shut the whole city down. Power outages, and you know, people probably out there. Fighting for uh, fighting for eggs at the grocery store. Who knows? <laughs> exactly. Well, you mentioned St. Louis, so I'd love to start at the very beginning of your timeline, and obviously we'll bring Matt in as well. So Matt's story, should I say? So tell me where you were born, and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Yeah, absolutely. So I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, a suburb of suburb outside of there. So uh, St. Louis is a, is a very prideful place. We don't have much to be prideful for, but we are very prideful. We've got the, uh, the St. Louis arch and our sports teams, the blues and the Cardinals. We love, we love Budweiser and Anheuser-Busch and, and Emo's pizza. That's kind of our staples, but grew up there. Um, so my family dynamic, I have three siblings, all of whom are half siblings. So as we get into Matt and his story, uh, important points to note that that although Matt was my half brother, his last name was Brewer, mine McCartney. uh, We shared the same mother, Matt, Matt, Kendall and Jordan are my siblings and they were 
they lost their father when they were young. So my, my mom has been through a lot in her life. She was widowed. Um, she lost her son and is, is my rock, but, um, grew up in, in St. Louis. My parents got divorced when I was, um, in, in seventh grade. So had that, had that dynamic as well, which is uh, a whole nother conversation. But, you know, I mean, I honestly, I grew up with, in in good conditions, right? I had I had parents who lo- parents who loved me, and um, although had the the tragedy of the of the divorce, um, were, was always super close with with my siblings and um, especially Matt. Now you mentioned that he lost his father. If you, if you're able to disclose, what was it that he died from? Yeah, man, that's a that's another um, a, another long story, which I'll get into briefly. So he actually he actually died by by suicide as well. Um, so like I said, man, my, my mom has been through it all and she is my, she is my absolute rock. But so Tim Brewer was an amazing man. He was a a pastor, um, and was also a, um, avid adventurer. So he was, I mean, he, he climbed the Matterhorn. He has done amazing things in his life as a, as, as a mountaineer and, and also brought so many people closer to Christ as well. Um, but he, he was in an accident where he ended up losing, um, a limb. And then due to the, to that experience, obviously I was not alive, um, nor can I talk into it too much, but he ended up, he ended up dying by suicide when, um, when all my siblings were, were very young and my mom was left with, um, so I guess backing, backing up a little bit, my oldest sister, Jordan, um, she is severely handicapped, mentally handicapped. Um, and my, my other sister, Kendall was also, um, at the time, you know, born with, with, with a handicap as well. Um, she miraculously grew out of it, um, which is, which is pretty crazy as well. So yeah, lots of different moving parts of the story. Like our, our family can, uh, our family could have a, a TV series, man. It's, it's crazy, but, um, yeah, so that's, that's how Tim died actually. Uh, was by was by suicide as well. See, this is such an important part of the entire equation, and we're going to get into head trauma and CTE as well. But the other thing, I think, the real elephant in the room of mental health in general, but especially in the uniform professions, is when you're a soldier or a marine or a firefighter. There's this assumption like, oh, well, it, you're struggling because you saw that thing, you killed that guy, you you know saw the baby killed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera and a complete disregard of what happened prior. And that can, and we'll get into, obviously, head trauma as well, but also what was your family dynamic? You lose a parent to suicide, you go through divorce, you have you know special needs siblings that need extra attention, maybe you acting as the, the father when you should still be a child. I mean, all these different dynamics are compounding as well. Yeah, man, absolutely. And um, yeah, that's a it's a very interesting point. And I think one that there's a lot of therapies out there that, you know, when you talk to a lot of these, these people who we've talked to, right. Special operators, um, people in the first, first responder community, they join the military for a reason. And it's not, and that's because a lot of the times it's because of, you know, things that they're trying to escape in the past. And then they don't really address it until later in life. So not only do you have childhood trauma, do you have things like losing your father, things like going through a, um, it was not a clean divorce by any means. I'll, I'll leave it at that. And it, and it really shook my brother up as, 
as, as well. Um, but then you go and you experience head trauma and then you go and you see things like dead babies, right? And you have to, you know, do things that, that can lead to PTSD. So all these things are just compounding and so many, so many, especially men in the military, you know, women as well hold it and internalize it and to the point where it's, where it's too late. So it's just really this horrifically perfect storm that that is just running rampant within within that community absolutely yeah and i hear this over and over again well amidst some of these you know this trauma that's going on what tell me about athletics and sports that both you and matt were doing through your childhood yeah absolutely so another important dynamic to note matt was 10 years older than me right so when I was born, Matt really was that, that protector, that, that father figure to me, that, that mentor, my best friend, really, um, you know, the person I looked up the most in life and, um, him and I just had this, this super special, uh, relationship. So I grew up watching Matt just dominate in sports. So in, in St. Louis, Missouri, we attended Lafayette high school. Um, you know, he was, he was an all state running back, all state linebacker, all state wrestler, um, just a tenacious, tenacious football player. So I watched, uh, I grew up, you know, watching my, watching my big brother play football. Um, and then he went on to go play football at the Naval Academy where he was the number 38. We'll get into, into that story later, I'm sure. Um, so I, you know, I always knew I wanted to, to play football. So I also played football, football and baseball as well. Um, my, my whole entire life. And really because just from a young age, right. Seeing my brother on the field, um, just, just cracking helmets and and looking up to him i knew that that's what i wanted to do as well so when we look at that period you know because when i I watched the video that you guys have online on, on youtube and it shows some of the footage of him doing training and you know he was in the boxing team as well this is another part of the equation there's probably people out there that have never been in fire police military that are still going through the same things but if you were as you said cracking helmets when you were young i've been a combat sports athlete my whole life so the number of headshots i've taken is you know numerable um so again we're talking about that perfect storm that compounding element did he ever report um i mean maybe not to you but when you retroactively look at it and talk to to your mother about it any any bad concussions when he was playing during the school and collegiate times yeah he he reported probably i would guess (laughs) like 10 to 25% of the concussions, concussions that he had. I mean, that's what we do as football players. Like me growing up, my favorite play was a slot back and I got to go try to put my helmet, the crown of my helmet in the ear hole of the linebacker, right? Like that was, that was my favorite play. That's what you, that's what you longed for. Um, Matt probably reported about, you know, three to five concussions. I remember specifically, I forget who Navy was playing, but Matt was the headhunter on the special teams when, when he was, uh, I think, a, I think he was a, a freshman. Um, so his, obviously his job was literally to, to go and, and, and to crack schools. And there was a helmet to helmet collision so loud with Matt that like literally it sounded like a gunshot went off. Like everyone in the stadium was quiet. Um, and that's the type of player he was. There's stories, literally stories of him in high school cracking someone's helmet in half, like literally breaking it in half. So, um, I mean, and he, him and I both played football since we were seven years old, not understanding the consequences that, that might come later in life, right? You're, 
your brain is developing and you are essentially like hitting it against a wall. Like if you saw, if you saw your kid hitting your head on, on the table, you'd be like, Hey, stop that. Like, what are you doing? Like, obviously that's not good for you. What we're doing on the, on the football field with, with these kids. And I, I, I love football. I, it definitely taught me a lot about teamwork, a lot about discipline. I just, you know, I think that the, the risk far outweighs the reward in terms of having young children start playing. Um, my, my personal opinion, but yeah. So even before Matt's time in the military, he had experienced so many different injuries to the head. Um, I mean, God knows how many he actually had because we're, uh, we're strong athletes, right? We don't, we don't talk about concussions and, and, and we stay in the game as long as we can. Absolutely. I've had numerous conversations now with coaches and athletes, people that were at a high, high level when they were younger and through a pair you know, English eyes coming from another country, what I see is there's such an elite level of performance in high school and college, but then there's so many Uncle Rico stories of people in their 30s. Oh, I could have been, should have been, but I blew out my knee, I blew out my shoulder, etc. And it really kind of startled me because I'm like, well, these are supposed to be games. It's not supposed to like destroy you when you're, you know, 2022, 20, but this is what I see. So I feel like, of course, winning is, is important, but if winning comes at a cost of the individual's wellness for the rest of their life, that is the discussion that we've got to have. Yeah, man, absolutely. And I think in terms of, in terms of the military as well, in terms of really anything or in, any profession, right? You know, you, two things, you kind of, you kind of mentioned moving on, right? So many people live in the past. Well, if, if you live in the past and your identity was, um, was a football player or, or, or was a soldier, right? Then, and you can't move, move past that. And, you know, how are you going to be able to enjoy the things that are, that are coming now, right? How are you able to, to turn into the person who are you, you're supposed to become when you're living in the past and um, not moving on from, from this past identity. So I think that's one thing. And also another part is, especially for athletes who then transition into the military, if you look at the special operations community um, or, you know, just really any, any infantry or guys going from the academy, a lot of them played sports growing up, right? So they've already, as we talked about, had these, had these brain injuries. And then you're asking them to, to lead and make life or death decisions on the battlefield and to protect each other and to pr protect our country. And if we're not protecting their brain health, then how are they able to make the, you know, the best decisions that they can? Absolutely. Because I mean, we're going to have to be around head trauma or concussions at some point. But I think the, uh, what I've watched in the MMA world, in the striking world, is there has been a shift from what I experienced about 20 years ago in Shootbox, which was Fight Club. Hands down, doesn't matter how big, I had to fight them, and it was almost to being knocked out. And I had perforated eardrums and broken noses and you name it. And then now I hear more and more and more people are doing very, very light sparring and then you know, like almost like touch sparring and then a lot of pad work and then they fight when they get in the ring. Because as you know, as people realize now, you can't condition the brain. Like you only get so many shots. And you watch Chuck Liddell and some of these incredible athletes. The moment they get knocked out once, all of a sudden they're just getting tapped and they're going down again and again. So, you know, there's there's not um, no one saying that you'll never be around concussions or never get hit. But how do we minimize it in training and any any environment where you don't need to be exposed to that? 
Yeah, man, that's a great point. And again, like I, I, I thoroughly enjoy football. Um, I, I boxed too for, um, for, for four years and I, I love those, those type of sports. The, the language on CT was, has now been proven, right, by, by, um, the National Institute of Health that CT is caused by repetitive impacts to the head, right? So the more impacts you have to the head, the more likely you are to get this, um, this degenerative brain disease. Right. So if we can limit the amount of contact that we have, then we are significantly reducing the chances of, of getting CTE, hence eliminating potentially seven years when you're young and your brain is developing from having those impacts to the head. And then, you know, different protocols that we can implement in the military, um, within sports teams, within contact sports, within combat sports to reduce the amount of injuries that we have to the head. And that in the long term is going to reduce your chances of, of getting CTE. So. I think that's one point. And it's also important to note that it gets significantly more complicated when we're dealing with combat because, you know, you have to be taught how to, um, how to fight, right? How to shoot, how to do these things at a, a very, um, advanced and, and precise level because lives depend on it. So it's a, it's something that it's definitely a difficult issue that, that we need to tackle together. But again, lives depend on, on your brain being healthy as well. I'm jumping ahead, but with the concussion CTE research that you've immersed yourself with now, I've had a few people from the neuroscience world that have said that head trauma has seems to have a pretty co- strong correlation with Parkinson's and ALS as well. Have you come across any of that? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm definitely not the subject matter expert on this, but um, a lot of times CTE can be seen as early onset dementia. So, um, and, you know, they're finding the difference between these, uh, between head, head injuries and an increased risk of, of par- Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Um, again, I don't claim to be an expert on these subjects. I can connect you to the people who, who are, but there, there's extensive research that's being done that, that, um, you know, repetitive impacts to the head, traumatic brain injuries, they are, they are significantly increasing the chances and, the timeline of which people can can be um, experiencing degenerative brain diseases in the future. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I don't know if I got the name right, but I think, is it Dementia Pugilista, I think it is, which is punch drunk, you know, the boxers that, you know, basically look at any boxer in their 40s and 50s that are sitting around in the chat shows now, and they can barely even articulate because they clearly had trauma. So we had these warning signs decades ago as well. Exactly, yeah, and... and- you know, punch drunk syndrome was the original term of, of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, right? They, they've been seeing it. And obviously, you know, it doesn't, doesn't take a genius to, to, to realize that you get hit in the head a bunch that it's going to, it's going to hurt you later. But, you know, we're finding um, just how, just how significant this disease is. And if you, if, you know, if you make it to the, your forties and fifties and you have these things of, you know, quote unquote, early onset dementia and, you know, all these other different cognitive functions, the younger stages of, of CT are a lot of where the, um, the psychological changes can happen, right? In your behavior and your mood. So that's, if you look at this, you know, 86% increase between, um, in, in the veteran community of people between 18 and 34 who, who are dying by suicide, that's about the same time frame where, 
stage two CT might be might be seen, right? And it has all these different effects in the way that in the way that you think, in the way that um, you behave, in the way that you communicate. So, yeah, man, it's uh, it's it's very very scary stuff, and um, it's 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 things that we have to continue researching and get to the bottom of. Well, you mentioned that Matt was ten years older than you. What do you remember about his? Um his career aspirations. Was he always someone that was passionate about the military or was there something prior to that that he wanted to do? Yeah, Matt, Matt was always a protector, right? So he made the decision to go play football at the Naval Academy. Um, like you said, was a, he was a heavyweight, the heavyweight boxing brigade champion there, you know, was a, was a two year starter, uh, tied, uh, tied records at, at the Naval Academy. And, you know, I remember watching him on, on, on TV, just, just so proud of my brother. After that, he, he served in the Marine Corps. Um, when he was younger, actually funny, funny, you mentioned, you know, a lot of kids will say they want to be professional athletes or astronauts. And, and Matt wanted to be a firefighter. And later in his life, as, as I'm sure we'll get to, he ended up, he ended up, I guess, fulfilling that dream. But um, Matt always, he could never be behind a desk. After he transitioned out of the military, he tried that. wasn't for him, right? Always wanted to help others, and and always wanted to, um, I guess, have that, have that thrill and that and, and that sense of purpose and that sense of camaraderie. So before we get to his entry into the Marines, up to that point, had he exhibited any signs of any sort of mental health struggles at all? Um, I think he dealt with you know, things that anyone does, right. That, but not definitely not to the point where, where, where I would have noticed it, um, at, at that age. Right. Um, again, he was always just, the always just the guy I, I looked up to the, the most in life, the, the person who I, who I wanted to embody and, um, you know, wanted to become. So before the military, no, I don't think that there, that there really was much that at least I could see, obviously he, we all have our own demons that we battle, but. So then, as you mentioned, he was in the Naval Academy. Walk me through his entry into the Marines and then where he found himself deployed. Yeah, absolutely. So after, after he graduated from the Naval Academy, stayed on to coach for a year. Um, and then he ended up becoming a, um, a, uh, a captain in the Marine Corps. So he served and he had, he had deployments to South Korea, um, Guam, um, some of those places. And then he was, he, he was always, he was always in, in, um, heavy artillery, right? So he was always around large blasts, large explosives, was always in, um, was always in combatives, went to, went to IOS infantry officer school and, um, you know, was ended up, ended up becoming a captain and, he did, he did all this for about eight years. He was, he was stationed in Hawaii. And then after Hawaii, um, he actually had a unique opportunity to, to go to Mali, Africa. And in Mali, he served as a special operations expert, um, with the United Nations out there. And I think that's really where Matt was probably introduced to a lot of trauma, right? He, he couldn't talk about the things that, that he was working on or the things that he was experiencing, but, I remember specifically when he came back, there was times where we'd be watching a movie together 
And there's one movie in, in particular is about a, it's about the life of a, a Brazilian slum and, and gang. And there's a, there's a scene of the movie where there was a dead child on the street and Matt just got up and, and left. He's like, I'm sorry, I can't do this. And again, in the moment, I didn't really think too much about it, but it was evident that, you know, his time in the military, there was a lot of trauma that he saw that he wasn't, um, either able to talk about in the moment or, or didn't want to talk about at all. So up to that point uh, in the video, your mother talks about, you know, starting to notice differences and him talking about memory problems. Was that happening during his time in the Marines or was that after he transitioned out? I think, I think a little bit of both, right? I, you know, he, he, I think hit a lot of things from, from me, especially, um, but I think once he returned from from Molly, that's when we really started to see. That's when, especially she, yeah, she, she and I really started to see changes in him was was after his time in the military. And then obviously things were, I think, were progressing along that time as well. And and his time in the military probably due to his long exposure of of head head impacts through sports before then. So you touched on this before, you know, earlier in our conversation, but one of the most jarring things for a lot of people in uniform is the transition out. Because as you touched on, that's your identity. If you're not careful, it becomes all of you, which you know it never was when you entered. But you know you had a sense of purpose. You had a tribe with the men and women that you serve with. Um, and then all of a sudden, you're on the other end. You know, and and this uniform now, you're a, you're a civilian again. Um, Talk to me about what made him decide to transition out of the Marines and, and if you observed any struggle once he first got out. Yeah, absolutely. So he transitioned out of the Marine Corps. I think, you know, he was in the point of his life where he was either going to do special operations and, and make that, you know, the rest of his, his life and his career, or he wanted to get out and, and try to have a family, right? Try to um, Try to live this kind of, normal you know quote unquote normal civilian life and um he was really excited for, for for what that next chapter was going to be um so man he transitioned out and i think this is really when that perfect storm started to to brew right so he um he did screening for that for the fbi and made it to um made it very far in the process i think to the final round and then um, I don't, I don't know for certain, um, there was something that was disclosed and he, he was not able to, he, he didn't get the job. Right. And that, that really broke him. I think was, I think it was the beginning of it because, you know, these, these type A guys, right. Who have been, who have been at the top their whole life. Right. When, when you fail, I think that's a, or when you don't get something that, that you set your mind out for, right. That's a, that is a a rude awakening and if you let it right it can as we talked about earlier it can destroy you um so i think that was the first thing and then when he didn't get that he would he started to beat himself up and um he moved back to st louis for a little bit and, and during this time he was actually training to he wanted to go back to nfl so going back to his his identity and his roots of football right he wanted to um he wanted to go back and and try to make a team because that was another one of his his childhood dreams, right? He was someone that always chased after the things that they wanted, and 
um, kind of realized that he wasn't at the same the same athletic performance that he was at, right? You 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 lose those fast switch muscles and all these all these things. So those are two identities that I think he realized no longer were were true. Um, and then after that, he he took a job with um, as a I forget what the what the exact role was, but essentially was was doing supply chain and logistics, right? Which a lot of officers and the and the military will will get into afterwards, and just absolutely hated it. So gave that a try, and then so really as he was transitioning out of the military, right? I think this identity of an athlete, this identity of of a warrior, had kind of been stripped away with him, and he didn't necessarily know what to do next. Um, so that led him to pursuing his childhood dream of, of becoming a firefighter. Um, but, you know, throughout this whole time, I never really saw it, but I can definitely understand looking back at it now, how difficult that must have been, right? That transition to find out, you know, who, who am I anymore without these uniforms? Absolutely. Yeah, I would think especially what I've talked about, I was in uniform for 14 years and then transitioned to this and I felt my ego struggling with it and i mean that not in a narcissistic way but just the ego itself and i ended up volunteering for a bit in a fire service a fire uh, department here and it was terrible i wasn't a real firefighter i was a ride-along basically so uh, right. that lasted very very short amount of time um but the sense of purpose from this podcast i realized okay i'm still doing the same thing i always wanted to do where i see people struggle is all of a sudden you get into real estate or finance or logistics and these people that serve that want to be protector that want to respond when people are having their worst day or proactively stop them having their worst day that's not the same kind of through line so i can see how the fbi or the fire service would align with the thing that he really you know it took him into the marines in the first place yeah, man, absolutely. And, you know, he, like I said, he, he always kind of chased that, that thrill, chased that adrenaline and, and wanted to know that what he was doing was helping other people. And that's what he found a lot of his, his, his sense of purpose in and, you know, being surrounded. And um, I think just having the discipline of, he was a very, very disciplined man, right? That's what, what sports and the military teaches you. And then having that, that regimen and that discipline kind of stripped away from you and you not knowing what to do next i mean while battling with the demons that you've that you've seen while dealing with a brain that probably isn't functioning even close to 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 where it should be because of your experiences and because of your sacrifices i mean it's just uh it really as you know this well but it takes a it takes a tragic moment for you kind of to understand just how just how big of an issue it is and how much we, we really need to help. Absolutely. So when he came out of the military and is doing this desk job and ultimately pursuing the fire service, now he's in front of you. Now you're getting to witness it firsthand. Talk to me about that journey that you witnessed kind of leading up to, to when he finally took his own life. Yeah, man. Um. You know, God blessed me with a lot of time with my brother before he passed. So, you know, we mentioned all the things, the transition that he was having. This was all also in the midst of COVID, right? So you, you are, you have this perfect storm and now you're isolating people, 
right? And taking community away from them. And we don't know the numbers of how many people took their life during COVID, but if they ever come out, and especially in the military community, like it's, it's, it's not going to be good. Um, so I was back from school and, you know, Matt was, Matt was living at home too, which I'm sure, um, aided him, right. As he was trying to, to find, to find whatever this next, this next step would be for him. So, man, we spent about three months together. And during that time, we were as close, probably spent the most time with each other than we ever had in our life. Right. Which was, which was such a blessing. I mean, he would wake me up at six in the morning, we'd go on a run or we'd go box or we'd go do some, you know, some hit. And then at four o'clock in the afternoon, we would, we would hit a second workout and, and, uh, and, uh, go to the gym and, and bang out weights and, and do all that stuff. So spend a lot of the time with each other physically, you know, we would, we would go to the range and shoot guns together. We would um, do Bible studies together, right? We would, we would work together and try to find out, okay, you know, what does this next chapter for you look like? And during that time, though, we were with each other so much, I felt this, this kind of tension, right? This, this feeling of anxiety, this feeling of, you know, knowing, knowing that something was wrong, but neither one of us having the strength to ask each other about it or, or to talk about it because of the stigma that's been, that's been placed in the society. So, um, again, so fortunate to have spent that, spent that time with him. But looking back at it, some things that I, some things that I witnessed in which I think it's important for listeners to know as well. Um, you know, he would look in the mirror and he'd be like, He'd be like, I'm, I'm withering away. And then my brother was, you know, six foot one, 240 pounds with an eight pack. And, you know, we'd go to the gym and would, you know, throw up 315 for a warm up on, on the bench press. Like he is by no, by no means, um, fat, but was actually a, was actually a physical specimen. Um, but the way that he viewed himself was a, was that he was withering away. And I thought that that was interesting that physically he would look in the mirror and, and see that as well. And, um, definitely felt the same way internally as well. I remember going downstairs and there's one time in, in, in particular where he, his hands were in his, um, his, his, his hands were, were on his head and he was like, he's like, why? Like, why? He's like, fuck. Right. He was, and I, I was like, yo, what's going on? He didn't know I was there. He was like, oh, nothing. Like just, you know, um, obviously dealing in, with the voices in his head and, and the demons that, that he was battling. Another time he looked at me and he said, remember this one very particularly. Um, but he said, I'm, I'm sorry that I'm not the older brother that you're used to and that you deserve. And I was thinking, I was like, dude, like, what are you talking about? Like, like there's nothing you could ever do that would take, that would take the way that I view, view you away. Right. I, I got Matt's dog tag tattooed on my back attached to a crown of thorns next to a cross when he, he was alive. Right. That's, that's who my brother was to me. He was, I put him on a pedestal up there um, next to Jesus. But I think an important thing to note is that we're all men, right. And, and, and women, and we're all humans and we all make mistakes and no one is perfect. Um, and I think when you are, when that has been your identity for, for a long time in life, then and then you kind of hit that, that deep depression and, and battle those demons, then you don't feel comfortable saying, Hey, like 
I'm not okay and, and I don't need help. So those are some of the things that, that I experienced. And, um, man, I, I tell the story and it never gets easier, but I went back to school and Matt went back to, or, or Matt actually went to, to Kansas city to become a firefighter. And I remember it had been a couple of weeks since we spoke, right? Cause the, like I said, there was that, we spent a lot of time together. Um, I went back to school and there's still always that, that anxiety and that, and, and that tension. And it was never super comfortable conversations, but I remember texting him and saying, Hey man, like let's, let's catch up on Valentine's day. And he was like, yeah, dude, sounds good. Like miss you. I, I love you. I remember on Valentine's day, which is his year anniversary is, is coming up this month. Um, but I remember looking at my phone with Matt's contact pulled up and looking at his contact thinking, I mean, I don't want to have this uncomfortable conversation. I don't want to experience that anxiety, that tension, that uncomfortable silence. I remember looking at my contact and I never called him and, uh, and he never called me either. And I'm sure he was looking at his phone thinking the same thing. And five days later on February 19th of 2021, I got the call from my mother, the worst phone call of, of my life saying that said Matt has taken his life. And, uh, I never had, I never got the opportunity to have that uncomfortable conversation with him. And, um, man, I wish that it, I wish that I did. And after that, through that suffering, um, was given this purpose of making sure that other people, you know, didn't have to to deal with that burden as well. Oh, I'm so so sorry, mate. And this is the problem: is and you hit the nail on the head. You didn't call him; he didn't call you. I think so many times, whether it's something you know critical like this, or simply, you know, one friend thinks the other friend doesn't care, and it's a two way street. One family member thinks the other family member doesn't care, and it's like, well, you're the you are you pick up the phone, make that phone call. It may be nothing other than chatting about what you bought at the grocery store, but it might be a life-saving call as well. You just never know. But that almost like, like you said, there's the stigma and the fear side and the discomfort of there's something between us, but it's also like a pride thing. Well, they never call me, you know, and it's not the case with you and Matt, but with a lot of people, well, you know, yeah, my dad never calls me. All right, well then have you tried calling him? You know, I know you may call him, you may have called him, 99 times out of 100 which i've experienced myself with my own father but fuck it call him again yeah man vulnerability and relationships and conversations it's a two-way street right like if you haven't talked to someone like it's not their response i mean it's just as much their responsibility to call you as, as it is your responsibility to call them and this life is all about making hard difficult uncomfortable decisions and picking up the phone and, and having that the strength to call someone or the vulnerability to call someone and putting your pride to the side or whatever that might look like. I can tell you from firsthand experience that, that, that you should make that call um, and you should lean into uncomfortable conversations and, and lean into, lean into the people in your life who, who you love. Now, in the video, your mother mentions an incident with the belt. Um, and again, this is, you know, I think it's something that, that needs to be heard, especially what Matt said to her. 
Um, so if you wouldn't mind kind of relaying that story, because I think that's a very powerful one. And then I got something to ask you after that. Yeah, man, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, you know, during this, during this time when Matt was at home, he went into the closet and he put a belt around his neck and he, um, my mom walked in and my brother walked out of the closet and she said, Matt, what's going on? And he said, I put a belt around my neck and I didn't feel anything. And I think that that is such a depression. You get to the point where where you don't feel anything at all. Right. And that's a scary, scary place to be in. Um, and again, these are all symptoms of brain injuries of CT. These are all symptoms of, of depression and anxiety and, and trauma. Um, so yeah, that was, I didn't, I didn't know that that had happened. And, you know, I, I always tell my mother this because as a, as a, with, uh, as a woman with the, the heart that she has, I think those type of experiences just, um, you know, have the, have the capability to crush her, but her understanding that there's nothing that, that she could have done, right. She's the most amazing mother. And, you know, when you're at that, when you're at that level of, um, of apathy and, and, um, yeah, man, it was just, it's a, it's a tough story for me to tell, but that was hearing that was like, man, I, I wonder what was going through his head, what kind of demons he was battling. I've had over 700 conversations now. Not every single one is about this particular topic, but it's amazing how I'll have someone on and we're supposed to be talking about nutrition or strength and conditioning and it ends up going down a mental health route because, as you said, we're all human beings. Just because you do X for a living doesn't mean that you're not having the human experience. And a resounding common denominator from so many of these people, whether it's pure trauma, like emotional trauma, where there's an element of TBI as well, is that to a healthy mind, people go, why would they do that? That's so cowardly. That's so selfish. Why would you leave the wife, the child, etc. behind? What I realize now, um, and I, you know, I subscribed to that years ago as well. What I realize now is that when these people are at this point of crisis, and again, whether it's pure trauma, whether it's you know sleep deprivation and psych- uh, psychiatric meds and alcohol and you know unaddressed childhood trauma and all these things, and or TBI, that the brain is broken. The brain is simply not working the way that the judgmental people on the outside are thinking, and so yep. people want the suffering to end, which is an, you know a more obvious thing. But there's also a sense of shame and and being a burden to the world and it sounds to me that matt identified as this strong protector and even though nothing changed from outside looking in his self-perception of himself was now i failed at being that protector and that leader etc so that to me is where a lot of the stigma comes this suicide at that point i would argue is courageous and selfless because if you truly believe in your heart of heart the devil's got you fooled that you are a burden to the world and you've done a profession where you put your life, um, you, know, you risk your life for other people. Therefore, your life is less important than other people. Suicide would be 
courageous and selfless at that moment you know a lot of people on this show are you know of whatever background and some of those religious beliefs this particular conversation is heralded as a sin and therefore i uh, i would argue that that is yet another level of stigma so what was that coming from a deeply you know faithful um family background kind of unpacking that and realizing that maybe that particular fallacy that particular belief wasn't true when it you know when it happened within your own four walls yeah man that's another great point and you know i think for me and the way that i look at it i think that God sends people to this earth to fulfill a purpose and Matt's purpose was fulfilled. And all of this happens for a reason. And now God is in, or Matt is sitting beside God in heaven and he is whole and he is happy and he is helping and protecting so many more people through his story and through his legacy than he ever could have on the battlefield. I'll tell you a story and it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty crazy one. Um, and this is how I knew that, that Matt was in heaven with our father, with his dad, w- with Christ. And, um, man. So a couple of days when I got back from, when I got back to St. Louis, um, you know, for the funeral and all that stuff, my sister, my, my brother's best friend, two best friends, Garrett and Dan, we all went down to, uh, we went on a walk, right? It was, it was in February and there's snow on the ground and it was, you know, it was was a brisk day, not too bad, but, but went down to a park and, um, we, we decided on this place to, to go to and, and to hike to. And when we got there, Garrett and Dan were like, Oh my gosh, like I totally forgot about this place. But at this particular or, or we would always used to go here and, and go swimming in the summer, right? At this, at this little swim spot. So we start on our walk, we start on our hike. And as we're walking by, they pointed to the, to the swim spot where they would always to go in high school. And they said like, yeah, that's, um, that's where we'd always, always used to go hang out, crack a few beers and, you know, just, just have a good time. And at this particular moment, two eagles fly through the air over the, over the drinking hole. And Garrett looks at me and he goes, the last time I saw an eagle, and I, I think the only other time I saw an eagle in my life was when I was floating down the river with your brother. And I was like, I was like, chills at this point, like that's wild. And it gets way crazier. So we continue on our hike and, you know, think about this, Matt and, and Matt's father, right? Both died by suicide. Both were, both were incredible men. Um, but as we're coming back, we were on the track and my sister goes, Hey, Hey, let's take the train tracks. And so we started to walk down these train tracks. And, you know, one of the things I didn't mention earlier, but the accident that, that Tim Brewer was in, Matt's father uh, was actually, he was in a tunnel and he had no way to escape. The the train was coming and they didn't have their lights and other horns on and his leg got stuck in the train and and it got, and it got, uh, yeah. And it got scapulated. But so we were walking down these train tracks and as we were walking down the tracks, we saw this, this group of, of deer come out, will look to be like deer and they're running, they're running across. And there's these two white deer 
that stopped on the train tracks or right out, right offside of them. I'm like, what are those things? Like those llamas? I'm like, why the hell would there be llamas? Like, no, they're not llamas. So we were walking closer to these deer and they just stood there. And as we got closer, I just felt this overwhelming sense of, um, of calmness, right. And this, this, this presence of peace. And that was, you know, I was walking closer to deer. They literally just stood there and we got within 10 feet of them. Um, and then they didn't run off. They like walked off uh, on this hill and, and watched us, watched us walk away. So we saw the chances of seeing an albino deer is one in 30,000. And we saw two of them that day. And when I saw those, those two deer who were white and who were pure and who, you know, I just looked so, so whole, right. I was like, this isn't a vision of, of where my brother is right now. And he is, he is whole again and he is that peace and he's no longer dealing with those, with those demons. And then when I came back home, I opened my, opened my Bible and I said, God, like, show me something, right? Like, show me something that is, is this seeing these two deer and all this stuff wasn't enough. I was like, just show me something, right? And the first passage I opened up my Bible to was, um, was the parable of two eagles. And I was like, all right, well, I'm good. Like that's, I was like, I was like that. And I just started, I, I had the same reaction. I started laughing. I started crying. And so to, to answer that question in a story, like, you know, I don't know the, I don't know the theological reason behind it necessarily, but I know that my brother's in heaven with God and that, you know, what he did was, was not a sin. And I hope that, that, that story gives some people peace as well. who might be dealing with, with some of those, those same thoughts. Absolutely. Because I think that's the root of some of the stigma is going to come from, you know, certain religions. I mean, look at the Japanese culture, seppuku. You know, it's, I think I've got that right way, that word right. Um, but anyway, the, the suicide being honorable. And, you know, I'm sure that came from a time where it made sense. Maybe you were about to lose in battle and maybe your fate was even worse. But for modern society, you know, leaving again that family behind, is that still something that's appropriate today? So, you know, by removing that stigma of suicide and therefore you know at the moment we drive it into the shadows if you're from a certain belief that's that's dishonorable that's shameful well we need to remove that you know i don't believe any god would create people especially some of these poor children that have these horrendous childhoods and then get to the point where they're so depressed that they take their own lives and then someone says well they were a sinner no they were born in this place with these people this happened to them and they got to this point and i i totally disagree that that was you know was uh anything other than tragic basically mm -hmm. absolutely yeah i think i think there's, there's there's an important point to note in that even though in that space and i you know this is a reason for the nonprofit that i started and, and the conversations that that we have but even though in that space it might seem honorable and it might seem like like the only option and the, and the only thing to do, like, I promise you that it's not right. And that there are so many different things you can do that over time will help you. And it's not going to be easy. Like you're not going to say, you're not going to make a vulnerable decision and, and decide to ask for help and say that. And then the next day I wake up and be like, Oh shit. Like I feel totally fine. Like that's not how any of this works. But if we're talking about the communities which we serve, right, first responders, the military, 
people like my brother who pride themselves in being strong and being protectors, the hardest thing that you can do and the strongest thing that you can do is, is ask for help and to admit that I don't have this figured out and I cannot do this alone and taking that, that step so that you can get help and you can be the protector who you were called to be and, and who you were meant to be. So, you know, a lot of times the stigma is that being vulnerable or asking for help is weak and that, and that for some reason, like you, you should, you shouldn't have to do that and you should be able to take all this by yourself. I argue that's actually the strongest thing that you can do because if you don't ask for help and you don't reach out and, and get the treatment that you need and, and in, increase your brain health and increase your mental health, then you can't be the protector that, that you were put on this earth to be. So, um, you know, I think that people in that mindset, although, although it seems like it's the honorable thing to do, I promise you that that the stronger thing to do and the thing that you're you're meant to be and, and called to be is is that protector. And the only way to do that is to is to protect yourself first. Yeah, I, I wish the posters, you know, the, the mental health posters would would have the concept that if you are feeling like a burden to your family, to the world, that's your red flag. That's when you need to pick up the phone, and that's never in the conversation. Sadly, it's normally think of your family. Oh, don't do it, think of your family. Well, if this person is thinking they're a burden, that's exactly what they're doing is think of their family, and that's why they go through with it. I think another way that we access some of the the more resistant to the, the, the courage that it takes to ask for help is chasing that flow state if you want to be the most elite boxer or you know football player or special operations um, man or woman you have to have a calm mind to get into that flow state and so even if you kind of poo poo the mental health side all right well then performance you know do you want to die on the battlefield because your mind was so busy you didn't engage at target fast enough so that's the other side i think that you can address some of the kind of pseudo alphas that still believe in the the old school mentality yeah, man, mental fitness for sure. Like there's so many things I do in my own life, right? Dealing with my own depression and, and my own anxiety, things like cold plunges, right? Things like meditation, things like, things like breeding, things like socialization and, and, and prioritizing my, my faith, right? These are all things that they're uncomfortable steps that you take and they're not supposed to be, to be easy. And I think when you look about, if you look at it like that, like, Hey, like we are, we are men and we love doing hard shit. Okay. Well, if you like doing hard shit, then have the courage to, and the strength to, to ask for help, right. And to be vulnerable because there's nothing harder or more uncomfortable than that. So I think understanding that when you talk about the things you're going with and you ask for help and you lean on others, you're removing a weight from your shoulders. And when you remove that weight, you can be more, you're a better performer, right? You're, you're, you're more, you're, you're more dangerous, right? You are, you are more capable. So I think that that, that kind of language, like people need to understand that it's, it's not weak. And if you want to be the strongest warrior and protector you can be, like you have, you have to ask for help. Absolutely. I had a guest on recently, Michael Hicks, who lost his son, McCoy, who was in the Navy. And he talked about when, when he lost his son, um, one of the observations was that everyone would come to him and say, you know, are you guys all right? You know, you lost your, your child. And they would go to his daughter, um, McCoy's sister, Sienna, I think it was, and say, you know, you need to take care of your parents. But it was never 
are you okay to to the sister so talk to me about your journey i mean you just lost you know your big brother your hero what how did you kind of survive those first few weeks and then did you experience any of that kind of gold star sibling element where maybe in some case the grief and the support was focused in in the parents rather than than you well so the way that i dealt with my losing my brother is i kind of went all in on on sharing his legacy and and helping people through the man who who he was and I think, I mean, I channeled so much, so much grief and, and so much energy into that. And, you know, for the last two years, I've been, have been building this, this nonprofit organization and, um, you know, relentlessly sharing this message and, and sharing who he was. And it's not necessarily even about Matt anymore. I'd always honor him, but it's, it's to help other people through his story. Um, so that's kind of how, how I grieved is it was putting this pain to work and was, like I said, you know, trying to, trying to carry on who my brother was and not, cause there's this, there's this also the stigma that, you know, families don't talk about suicide. I remember one time I was talking to this guy about, about what I do in, in my organization and uh, my brother's story. And it took him half an hour before he finally said, you know, I, I, I lost my brother too. I was like, literally, I was like, dude, what the, what the hell? Why didn't you say that when I mentioned that like 30 minutes ago, like we could have, this conversation would have been totally different. Um, so I think, you know, especially it's a lot different dynamic when you lose um, a family member to suicide. And I always felt like I had a, a extraordinary support network around me. Um, my mom has, it's not the first time she's been through this. So her really focusing on, on her children and making sure that they were okay. Um, but man, I think, I think because I... I think because I put so much energy into helping other people and, and spreading this message that, um, you know, people probably thought I was more okay than I, than I actually was. Maybe I thought I was more okay than I actually was. And it wasn't until recently that I understood, you know, kind of that, that grief comes in waves and that this, um, exorbitant amount of energy going into, you know, helping other people, like it's, it, it's not sustainable. It's something I'll do forever. I'm going to always help other people and share my brother's story, but, um, man, I just, it, it was exhausting for sure. Putting all that, putting all that pain to work. Well, that, you know, very kind of cliche analogy about the oxygen mask in the plane, you got to get yours on before you can help someone else. I think that's, that's um, I'm saying mistakes, the wrong word, but that's a, a misjudgment. Sometimes I've heard people do is where maybe their own mental health story, they're just starting to come out and then they jump in and start a nonprofit, or whatever, but they're not there yet. And if they're not careful, even though altruism and helping can be incredibly healing, if you do it prematurely, you can actually add load and you're absorbing all that trauma as well. Yeah, man. And I think from, from firsthand experience, like I've been dealing with this recently, right? Um, thank God that my message is, is asking for help and, and being vulnerable because now I know that, Hey, like this actually works. So, you know, as I, as I work through, um, different stresses and anxiety in my own life. Like I'll, I'll reach out to people, right. I'll reach out to mentors. I'll say, Hey, this is what I'm feeling. I can't, I can't do it alone. What kind of advice do you have? And, you know, just, just really taking my mental health more, more seriously, because like you said, um, I know that with my aspirations and, and what I want to do and the amount of people I want to help, I have to be 
in a mindset and in a, in a performance state where I can do this for a long time. And for the first two years, I just kind of ran out of the gates. Um, and, uh, and it's not, it's not a sustainable pace. Now, was Matt already working for the fire department when this happened? Uh, he was he was in the fire department for for only a couple of weeks, and then he went to um, yeah he went to he went to Kansas City, and and became a firefighter, and then um, yeah was 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 only there for a couple of weeks, but he was he was a firefighter. So something I've talked about a lot on the show, I ended up working for four different fire departments and volunteering for a fifth for a very short time. And so I got to see this kind of, I had this unique lens. I had East Coast and West Coast. I had, I would argue, one of the best fire departments and one of the worst fire departments under the, this gamut of four. Um, and as I've gone through this journey and realized, okay, childhood trauma and, you know, in this case, accumulative TBIs can be, you know, it's, we're bringing this in before we ever pin the badge on our chest. The way that they've done it in all the places I've worked for is you do a polygraph which when you really look at polygraphs, because I did our research, and you go, oh, it's kind of like a magic trick to get you to admit that you did something in the past. Um, and then there's certain psychological tests that we do, which is just hundreds and hundreds of questions. And it's kind of almost trying to trip you up. I don't know who, what kind of brain would fail on this one, but, but again, very box checky. Um, and my, one of the things I want to try and kind of get the fire service to think about is, Rather than you, those two things, take that same budget that's already there. And as you join a fire department and you start going through probation, give these men and women X amount of counseling sessions because the number of people that are coming in, and you hear this a lot, well, they, they took their own life, but they'd only been in the military six months or only been a firefighter for a year. You know, it can't have been that. Well, no, it probably wasn't. It was probably a cumulative element. And then that was the final straw. You know, I had a little sleep deprivation and a couple of horrible calls. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. So, mm-hmm. you know, what I would, this isn't even so much a question, is that what I would love to see is an understanding in the military and the fire service. You don't remove people from the potential to serve because they had things happen in their early life, you give them the skills to process it so then you can become an even more resilient responder. Now, this may not specifically apply to TBI if there's anatomical damage, but for a lot of the people that don't have that element so much, I think we're missing a giant piece of the puzzle by not not screening but not counseling our people when we first hire them because that also then creates a relationship with a counselor from day one in that profession so they can go the moment they start feeling things aren't quite right absolutely and it goes back to that conversation of of performance right if you can if you can work through your past traumas and if you can increase your your mental health and increase your your brain health and you're going to be such a a better performer and when you go out and you experience and you kill right and you see people be killed then you can come back and you can have the tools to to deal with these problems right and not internalize them to the point where you lose and that's where vulnerability and and asking for help is so important and like you said it needs to be taught right it's not something that that is natural to us it's a it's a skill that needs to be taught and it's a skill that that needs to be instilled within these communities so that we can have the highest performing warriors and highest performing protectors that um, that that we all deserve and that and that they want to be. So I'm about to go around the world with a group of special operations guys um, and the nucleus of this particular trip, which is kind of part research project, part um, round the world 
crazy breakdown. These people are going to be skydiving, doing a marathon and swimming in seven continents in seven days. But that's just... Yeah, not enough. <laughs> but then the real, the real takeaway is going to be how do we put them back together again? How do we build them up, you know, physically, mentally, spiritually, etc.? And then that will become a docu-series and a book. But David Metcalf is at the core of that. Um, Ryan Parrott's Navy SEAL partner, sniper partner, and David took his own life. And then they kind of learned down the road that TBI was a big element of that. Sarah Wilkinson's been on twice, Chad Wilkinson. And Chad was aware of it to the point where he was able to preserve his brain after he took his own life so that they could actually do the the post-mortem and realize that that was the case. Talk to me about the road to understanding that that was what was going on with Matt and then how that led you into, you know, the world of CTE and concussion. Yeah, absolutely. So the way that, so Matt shot himself in the head, like so many um, veterans do people with access and who are, who are trained to firearm trained with firearms. Um, So his, his brain could not be studied. However, with his years and years of impacts to the head, the way that he played, right, as a boxer, as a wrestler, as a football player, and then serving heavy artillery and um, and, and the Marine Corps for eight years, like the experts in the in the field said it'd be very, very unlikely that he didn't have CTE just due to the, the sheer amount of impacts that he had to the head. So families reached out to us and said, hey, like you should look into um, – CTE, like we really think that Matt might have been struggling with this. And when we looked into the side effects of CTE, which I kind of touched on previously and just the things that I saw in Matt's life, right? Um, increased, increased aggression, apathy, um, you know, paranoia, uh, cognitive functions, right? All, all these sort of things that we didn't necessarily know to look for in the moment. We looked back and we're like, wow, that, that makes a lot of sense. It turns out that one of the last things that Matt looked up was was Junior Seau and CTE, and then what happened to Junior Seau's family. So Matt was also aware that he was dealing with with the effects of brain injuries as well. So after that, after that, we were introduced to the Concussion Legacy Foundation and all their work with with CTE and brain injuries, and we kind of went all in on on sharing Matt's story and, and spreading awareness on how brain injuries can impact and, and how they can change someone, um, which then led me to creating a fundraiser for the Concussion Legacy Foundation. I created a warrior workout in memory of Matt called the 38 Challenge. So 38 was Matt's, was Matt's number at the Naval Academy. And as I said earlier, I just kind of put my pain to work and I, I, wanted, I wanted to fill two gaps, one of the gaps being brain injuries um, and awareness for CTE and, and TBI. And then the other gap, which we've talked about a lot, is is challenging the stigma associated with asking and seeking help and being vulnerable. So since then, I um, have kind of found my my passion and, and my purpose. And as I created this workout, I wanted it to be more than just a, a workout. I wanted the meaning behind the workout to, to really be the, the reason for doing it. And the purpose of the 38 challenge exercise is to voluntarily place yourself in 38 minutes of an uncomfortable situation and to lean on others when suffering. Because as, as we draw back to our previous stories, um, having uncomfortable conversations, doing hard shit, like that is what we're meant to do on this, on this earth. And 
talking about our feelings, talking about our emotions, asking for help. That's the hardest thing of it all. Harder than, harder than I would say actually maybe harder than the seven X project, even though that's, that's pretty damn hard. So maybe that's not a great comparison, but you know, harder than the physical things um, for sure. And, and it's something that as men, especially, and as warriors, especially um, we, we really need to embrace. Now you have one of my guests on your board there. That was Don Tran, uh, uh, Marine Raider and uh, founder of the, well, co-founder of Deep End Fitness as well. So how did you guys meet? Yeah, Don, we launched the 38 challenge, you know, it took, I started on it about a month after Matt died and then, you know, got the, got the EIN and got the website and bootstrapped this whole, um, this whole gig. And then when we, when we launched Don Don reached out and said, uh, um, Hey man, like I love your mission. I'm here to help in any way. So we got on the call and, or we got on the phone and since then, you know, Don's just been an amazing friend and amazing mentor. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of synergy between what he's doing in, you know, deep end fitness as well between the breath and calming your mind and putting yourself in an uncomfortable situation. So, um, a lot of, a lot of awesome things that, that Don and I have been able to work on together and will continue to work on as well. So where can people find the workout and then where can they donate if they want to support your cause as well? Yeah, absolutely. So the 38challenge.org, you can find us, um, you can learn all about my brother's story. You can learn about our mission and how we plan to challenge the stigma associated with, with being vulnerable. Um, and then if you're interested in helping us, you know, financially, that's awesome. You can donate there. We'll be having three, three more events this year, or I guess technically four, um, one in Tampa, Florida, which will be in May, one in Dallas, Fort Worth, which will be in July. And then another one in St. Louis, which will be in August. And then we'll have virtual events as well. So people will be able to register for the event during those times. And, um, we've got a lot of exciting things. The 38 challenge is going to be a lot more than just a, just a workout and all, all tying back to, to doing hard things because we believe that at the core of, of doing hard things is being vulnerable. Beautiful. Well, I'll see if I can get over to Tampa for the May one then. Heck yeah, man. That'd be awesome. Yeah. When you're in, uh, when you're in Dallas, we'll, we'll, we'll link up together. I got some people I want to introduce you to. Excellent. Thank you so much. All right. Well, then you also have a pad, a, a podcast, a podcast. So tell me about that. Yeah. So we have the 38 Challenge podcast. And the purpose of the podcast, um, similar, similarly to this one is to have uncomfortable conversations, right? To allow people with influence, whether they be athletes or warriors or just people with incredible stories, the, the ability to share their darkest moments and to, to see how asking for help and being vulnerable help them get out of that moment. So we kind of play around in the, in the dark spots there so people understand that what you're going through right now is not unique um, and you're not alone. And then how to take the small steps forward into getting out of that darkness and how showing up and being vulnerable and asking for help is, is at the core of um, the other side of, of where you're at right now. So that's the purpose of the podcast is to, we have some very uncomfortable conversations. I don't, I've never had a comfortable podcast yet. I'm sure as you haven't either. And um, yeah, that's, that's, that's really the purpose is to, is to uh, hopefully help some people through, through some difficult conversations. Now, as a message of hope, you know, there's a lot of doom and gloom around TBIs and CTE. Um, I have heard some exciting news when it comes to, for example, psilocybin, some of the plant medicines. 
you're immersed in this world a little bit. If someone has a history of concussions, a history of TBIs, you know, what are some of the the um, the optimistic sides of the treatment and getting people out of that anatomical damage? Yeah, absolutely. So this, you know, these opinions are separate from my job at the Concussion Legacy Foundation. Um, there's a lot of research being done, and my job for them is to help further this research. I'm very passionate about, you know, how do we help people now? And I think there is, there's so much hope out there, right? So very interested into, you know, how psychedelics can help increase neuroplasticity and, and can help um, get to the root of, of the trauma that, that people are facing. There's different technologies out there. Um, Wave Neuroscience, who I, I connected you to, to, uh, to Dr. Juan, I'll, I'll kind of spark that conversation up again. Um, Merck technology is, is very promising. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things out there. And as we continue research, there, there is a lot of hope. And I think just spreading the awareness too, and having people understand that what you are going through and the things that you're feeling and the changes that you might be seeing are due to an injury to the brain. Similarly to if I broke my arm, right? I'm not going to look at my arm and be like, oh, I'm not going to tell anyone about this. Like, no, you, you need to go and you need to get it repaired. You need to get it fixed so you can be the best version of yourself and you can perform. So I think through empowering people to seek help, spreading awareness on how brain injuries might be impacting someone's mental health, and then continuing to to further the research and continuing to further um, the awareness, then we have a very hopeful future. And also just things you can do now, right? As we talked about earlier, prioritize sleep. Um, if you think you're dealing with effects of TBI and depression, limit alcohol. Um, do uncomfortable things, hard exercise, get into cold plunges. Like these are all things that are going to increase your brain health. And although it might not fix your, um, your TBI, like these are small steps you can take towards, towards increasing your, your mental and your physical health. And then, and all that starts with having the first uncomfortable conversation with yourself saying, Hey, I'm not okay. I need help and reach out to someone, take a couple of deep breaths and, and call someone you love and just say, um, hey, I can't, I can't do this by myself. And all those things, if you do those things, and there's, there's a whole lot of hope. Another area where TBI um, seems to be a, a, a justified use of is exogenous testosterone. I think, sadly, that industry has exploded and they're preying upon you know, everyone, especially men. And I see a lot of people that work shift work, for example, in my community, that really their their hormones are suffering because of the lack of sleep. And there's definitely things that we can do to address the f first responder work week, which is something that I'm you know determined to fix. But also at home, as you mentioned, no alcohol because alcohol blocks good sleep when you when you are off. You know, and strength and conditioning and what you're eating and mindful practice and you know cold plunges and breath work, etc. But what I've heard over and over again is when there is CTE that actually can stop the body from making testosterone. So that is somewhere where some of these operators and fighters and football players may need to actually supplement because their body is unable to stimulate the, the production of testosterone to where it should be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, again, these are, you know, I think, these are separate from the, from the research aspects, but in terms of, you know, testimonials like that, I've heard the exact same thing. And, you know, Matt is also someone who, who, who battled with, with testosterone as well. And when you're dealing with, so yeah, short answer. Yes. Like get your testosterone checked. 
and for testosterone flow, which can be caused by, you know, changes to, to the brain, then increasing those testosterone levels is another way to, to get to feeling like, like your normal self. Right. So, and again, none of this is going to happen, whether it's testosterone, whether it's, um, whether it's talk therapy, whether it's plant medicine, none of this can happen unless you are willing to take the steps to, to get help and, and ask for help. And like, as we've discussed in the past five minutes, there's so many different options out there for you. Just keep trying it. Right. And, and, you know, I hate that people are just being medicated, right. And throwing on eight, thrown on different, eight different medications. Like my brother denied all that stuff. Um, and just try to do it all, all on his own. And for some, for some people, those medications might help for others it, um, it, it could be detrimental, but the important part is, is that if you just keep taking steps and keep trying things, then I promise you there is a, there's a way that, that you'll get the help that you need. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that. I want to throw some quick closing questions at you. If you've got time before I let you go. Let's do it. So the first one I love to ask, is there a book or other books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Yeah, there's, there's definitely, there's definitely some awesome books. Um, I would say two that I'll recommend. One is winning the war in your mind by pastor, by pastor Craig Rochelle. And I know, um, you know, some people might not be religious, what this book does is it talks about the science of, of the brain and of trauma and of readdressing these neural pathways that we have, which lead to depression and anxiety, right? It's, it's the, um, it's the repetitive thinking that can lead to these ruts that we're in. So how do you rewire your brain to have more positive thinking, to have thinking based in truth? Um, so it's not just a book for Christians, right? It's a book that talks about science and also how the Bible might back that up. That's one, Winning the War in Your Mind by Pastor Craig Rochelle. The second one I would I would recommend is is Man's Search for Meaning. And the reason why I love Man's Search for Meaning is because there's only a few different things in this life that give you purpose, right? It could be spiritual, it could be a person. Um, but the third the third one is suffering, right? And so what anyone's going through right now they're dealing with depression and they're dealing with anxiety and they can't see a way out. What people need to understand is that this moment of suffering, the things that you're going through, it's necessary for you to, for you to have a purpose, right? It's necessary for you to have a fulfilling life. You have to experience the low lows in order to help people in order to become the best version of yourself. So understanding that this is a feeling that's going to pass and that there's so much strength that can be found and so much purpose that can be found in suffering as I've realized in my own life um, is, is one of the most encouraging things I think that, that people can hear. Absolutely. I love that book. And when you read what Viktor Frankl went through and then what he did with that after when he got out was incredible. So yeah, true inspiration. It puts, it, it puts things in perspective for sure. Absolutely. I actually had a, a lady, Dr. Edith Eager, who was in Auschwitz around the same time and she ended up becoming a psychologist. So a fascinating view again on, on you know, using that discomfort, as you said, and forgiveness and grace and all these other areas. But yeah, truly, truly amazing. Yeah, it's, it's weird, man. In my own life, like, as, as I mentioned, like, you know, dealing with, with depression and anxiety, as we all do, like, can even be exciting sometimes when it's like, man, like, once I get through this, like, oh, like, I'm going to be such a better person. So understanding that that this is necessary for you to become the person you're meant to be is 
is, is encouraging. And although it sounds weird, it can be, uh, can be exciting at times. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people listening, whether it was firefighter, you know, academy or orientation or, you know, police or, or some military on ramp or special forces selection you look back at that with pride but at the time you couldn't fucking wait for it to end <laughs> so exactly, there's your analogy exactly. right there exactly man yeah all right well then the next question what about a movie and or documentary <laughs> i'll say i'll say one movie dude um kung fu panda and the reason i say kung fu panda is because there's so many different parts of that movie when you watch it it's like like i think there's there's one point in the movie where um where uh master ugwe is like you know the the present or the the past is the past or the future is whatever but the the present the reason why they call it the present is because it's a gift right so, so staying in the moment and then also understanding um you know just that everything everything in this life is going to pass so that's a Honestly, like whenever I'm down, like I'll watch that. It's a, it's a weird one for sure, but um, it's got me through some, uh, definitely got me through some tough times. Um, and then, you know, I think, I think other documentaries and, and movies really, I just, I love learning. So um, I think Limitless by the, um, the uh, new, the new Chris Hemsworth documentary, the one on ice on cold exposure was awesome. Um, and just placing yourself in stressful Pur pur purposeful, uncomfortable conversations is um, is an important thing to have too. Plus, Chris Hemsworth just a it's just a good looking dude. I think we can all agree whether you're uh, whatever your sexual preference is. <laughs> all right. Well, then uh, the next question. Speaking of good looking dudes, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Yeah, I recommend. Um, there's a, there's definitely a lot of people I could, I could recommend. Um, but one of the ones which I would love to get on is, is, is Dr. Juan with, with wave neuro. I think that their technology is something that can help a lot of first responders. Um, you know, I could, I could recommend Clint Bruce, who's a, who's a great mentor of mine, um, former seal and just super enlightened cat and um, works a lot with, with that community. Um, I can recommend a bunch of dudes. So maybe that's a, maybe that's a different conversation we have and I'll, I'll think through it and get some, get some awesome guests on for you. Beautiful. Thank you. All right. Well, the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you and the, uh, the nonprofit, what do you do to decompress? Great question. Something that I've definitely been working on. Um, so I got, so I think first and foremost, one of the most important thing I'm focusing on is my faith. So, um, you know, spending time in the word and, um, and, and trusting God, the second thing is I got into transcendental meditation, which is, I think people should look into that. I've never been good at mindfulness and meditation, um, though that works wonderfully for some people. I just, with, with my brain, it, it was, it's hard for me to shut off. So, um, faith, transcendental meditation. Um, the third thing would be cold plunging. It's, there's no better way to feel more present than getting in a cold body of water. And then the fourth thing is, is exercise. I exercise about, at least two or at, at most two times a day at least once a day and which exercise modalities do you like yeah so i'm dealing with a knee injury right now um i have some have some cartilage issues in there i used to be running a recommendation i give to people is run without headphones get out in nature and don't put music in it's another great way to feel to decompress and to to think um i love lifting weights i love boxing um 
I actually started doing the Peloton recently, which is a, has been a pleasant surprise. Um, but really anything to anything to get the heart rate up and, um, you know, lift heavy weights and um, eat healthy. And, you know, if you're not, if you're not, if you're not exercise, if you're dealing with mental health, I would say, ask a couple of questions. Are you exercising regularly? Are you eating well? Um, and are you trying to, to be mindful, right? Breath work, meditation, those type of things. Absolutely. Well, last question. If people want to find you online or on social media, where are the best places? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the 38 challenge on, on any, um, any social media platform, 38challenge.org, you can find our podcast. And then my personal is, is Brant McCartney, where I talk about, you know, my own experiences and, and different type tips with mental health and how to be vulnerable and how to do hard shit. Beautiful. Well, Brant, I want to say thank you so much. Um, I always say this, when people relive some of the traumas in the past, I understand that that comes as a cost. I mean, it's going to pull the, you know, the, the, the scab off the wound a little bit, but to disseminate your story, to share it and, uh, you know, Matt's story and learn who he was to the thousands of people that will listen to us. I know, I know, you know, that that little piece that you gave to us today is going to be magnified. So I want to thank you so much for being vulnerable today and being so generous with your time. Yeah, man, absolutely. It's an honor to have, uh, to have been on here and to, and to tell my story. And yeah, for anyone listening, who's, who's in that dark spot right now, um, just, just keep taking steps. I promise you, I promise you it gets better and, and, uh, ask for help because nothing's harder. <laughs>